This episode of Four Friends Fight About Film deals with content that some listeners may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. <laughs> Theme song. This is Four Friends Fight About Film, a podcast about movies and things more important than movies, if we ever find any. In celebration of Halloween, tonight's theme is... I was hoping somebody would jump in there oh, and didn't say Disturbing. Thank you, Gabby. Disturbing. We'll each choose the three films that have most gotten under our skin. So to start off tonight, say your name and what scary movie character you'd choose to go as for Halloween. This is Lance. I hate this part of the show, but I'm going to give in anyway. I don't know how I'd pull this off. I want to be the HAL 9000 from um, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Don't know how I'd do it. I think it'd be tricky because I'd have to talk like him all night. Give us an impression. Where the hors d'oeuvres, Dave. Like, I'd have to stay in character <laughs> the whole the, time. Do uh, the French version. Qu'est-ce que tu es fait, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> My name's Gibby, or oh, Gabby. <laughs> Kyle Gibson. Since I'm an adult, I don't have to dress up for Halloween anymore, but if I had to. Ooh. You don't wow. have to. It's just fun. Wow. It's something fun people do. <laughs> But I'd pick Lance's movies because they are terrifying. Doesn't oh, the, the movies I picked for tonight's list? Yeah. You would go as all, all three <laughs> movies. All of them. Like three DVDs. Wow, please tell <laughs> me how you pull this off. Covers. <laughs> it's incredible. It would be the most confusing costume ever. <laughs> oh. My name is Jordan, and I would be Bob from Twin Peaks. Would you be bothered that no one at the party would understand that? Well, see, here's the thing. I wore this for Halloween in the year 2000. Everybody knew who I was. My buddy Chris was, was Dale Cooper, and my friend Aaron was... Laura Palmer. Wait, did you guys go at like you planned it out ahead of time? Yeah, you would just ha you'd have to have seen Twin Peaks and then you would know who Bob was. Right, and I guess my point is most people haven't seen Twin Peaks. Well, but I don't know about most. You believe over fifty percent of people have seen Twin Peaks in the world? <laughs> I don't know. All right, my name is Hudson, and um, okay, I'm going to describe my costume to you. And you tell me what the character is. Didn't know we were we just a game. Hang on, Christian we just, Slater. I'm we just, just winging it. We just took the lamest part of the show yeah, and made it lamer. I'm just winging. <laughs> Christian Slater. Blue shirt, and I'm carrying around 50 eggs. Paul Newman from. Yeah, Cool and Luke. I'm sorry. I thought this was supposed to be scary characters. Oh yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> Oh Here's the, Hudson does find that scary. Here's the thing: is I actually <laughs> made those eggs at any the time. notes for tonight, and I wrote out the question: say what your scary movie character is. And I forgot that I put scary in there, and mm. I just chose a movie character. A couple of things I want to point out about this episode: we actually had some debate about whether to even do this because Gibby and Hudson are fascists who are into censorship and don't want to talk about certain types of films that they don't like. Is that a fair way to put it, guys? Or certain content. I mean, when like you... I'd say that's about the most unfair way to put it. <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, when you... Because uh, knowing your movies before, we start, we were right starting to talk about this idea and you presented these movies and I was like, well, I just don't want to talk about that particular subject for an hour on a Saturday night. Right. I would much rather talk about something you know, You'd positive. You'd rather talk about that on a Monday night about. or a Tuesday So night. let me let me clarify what we're talking about here. These, this is not best horror films. So would be totally different lists and this is not scariest films these are films that troubled us when we saw them that really rattled our cages two of the films on my list i would not recommend anyone watch ever i think you should watch them well yeah that's we'll talk about that a little bit later my number three is silence of the lambs it's a brilliant movie very well received movie directed by jonathan demi and written by ted talley based on the book by thomas harris it's about an FBI agent named Clarice Starling. Uh, great name, by the way. Yeah, it's a pretty so, solid name. Uh, who teams up with a currently imprisoned serial killer named Hannibal Lecter, who is, you know, kind of a household name now, the character, uh, in order to catch another active serial killer named Buffalo Bill. Uh, it's a great setup. It's a great film. Came out in 1991. And I think it did so well that it kind of set off a trend for these type of serial killer movies for years to come. I don't know. I mean, I know there were serial killer movies before that, but it seemed like there was a lot kind of rode the tales of Silence of the Lambs. I, I think it brought it to like a big budget Hollywood. It made a lot of money. It was surprising to see this type of content be so well received. Before this, this felt like the types of I don't know, subject matter that was relegated to like 
you know, the back alleys of the film world. So to suddenly see this movie, I think it was one of the one of the few films that swept the big five Oscars, yeah. um, being best picture, best actor, best actress, screenplay, and director. Uh, so it was That's unusual right. to see something. This movie troubled me because up to this point in my life, all the movies I'd seen, people's skin remained on their bodies. <laughs> so this was a this was a bit of a shock for me. Well, this came out when I was 13 years old, and I'm not exactly sure when I saw it. I can tell you when you saw it. We saw it together. Did we see it in the theater? No. Here's oh. where we saw it. Washington, D.C. trip. Really? Eighth grade. Yep. Showtime. Um, hotel yeah. Grade. Hotel room. So all, all group, big group of uh, middle school students sitting in hotel room. That's Silence hilarious. on the Lambs was on Showtime that night. The next morning, if you had been in the Washington, D.C. mall circa 1992, you would have seen a group of horrified freaked out in the fetal position yeah. rocking everyone saw it the night before and was just the rattled the to their core yeah it was horrible <laughs> So, okay, so the reason I want to talk about this movie, I mean, obviously, after you hear some of the other movies mentioned tonight, this is probably pretty lightweight. But having seen it at 13 years old, it certainly uh, sticks with you. But the reason I want to talk about it is that there are two villains in this movie, Buffalo Bill and Hannibal Lecter. Both of them are dark characters. One eats his victims. The other one makes suits out of them. So on the scale of bad people, they're pretty equally weighted. <laughs> now, Buffalo Bill, I guess, wastes the rest of the body, which is not, I'd say that's <laughs> more evil. Not a good use. More of, evil. Yeah. If you've got it there, just use it. Yeah. Bill. They're both really fun to do impressions of, too. Oh, let's hear it, Lance. Yeah. Put a lotion in the basket. <laughs> That's Buffalo Bill. <laughs> what color is your sky, Clarice? That's pretty good. Yeah. Wow. Do you feel really? like, do you, are you afraid that Hannibal's done too many times? Yeah, I feel like I'm just adding on to something that I can't make better. I think you know Gibby just like made it better. With your cheap shoes and your... <laughs> You look like a rube. <laughs> the rest of the podcast is going to be <laughs> just me trying, gonna be trying to grasp. Uh, yeah. Here's the thing about these two characters, though, is that one of them a is a delight to watch, while the other one makes me want to close my eyes and plug my ears and go, la, 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 la. Which one? Obviously, Hannibal Lecter is the one that's a delight to watch, whereas Buffalo Bill, I, I don't want, I want to look away. Oh, um, and I feel fun. like this movie explores both the types of of disturbing movies out there. I mean, Hannibal Lecter represents types of movies that I can handle, me personally. They're fun and clever and well-written and are clearly fantasy. I don't go to bed at night worried that Hannibal Lecter is going to show up at my door. He's not the type of character that you read about in the newspaper. He's a great movie character. He's a great book character. He's like clearly fiction. He's someone that you not like, but you like appreciate in some way because of how he's played and how he's written. Uh, whereas Buffalo Bill is betrayed so realistically that it, it gets under my skin that I'm worried that the quiet guy across the street like secretly has a girl in his basement. That these are the stories that we read about in the newspaper and my issue with these types of films is that it's too real life. That for good or bad there are things that happen in the world that are so atrocious I want to pretend that they don't happen. I had some difficult experiences when I was a child and so movies have always represented for me a way to escape and to get out of reality. I'm a fantasy world that I could disappear into so my favorite movies are, are those types of things. The big spectacle sci-fi fantasy films that I don't want you know real life messing up the fantasy you make a great point about the differences in the two characters I think the difference is Hannibal has a code he lives by he has a admittedly twisted but still present moral structure to him if I was stuck in a room with him I could reason with him Buffalo Bill is completely psychotic there's no reasoning with a character like that that to me is what makes Hannibal likable he well if you just cooperate and put the lotion in the basket <laughs> right. it wouldn't be that big of a put deal lotion in the basket. <laughs> but but I but yeah to me that's the big difference it's um one of them is actually in a in a weird way a force for good he's helping accomplish something we want accomplished right. in a really messed up way but he's still doing it and you're right it, this a lot of this is basically real life a lot of the a lot of the techniques we see buffalo bill use you know pretending to have a broken arm that was those were used by ted bundy they, they lifted a lot of these characters from ed gein jeffrey dahmer i mean re real life serial killers were inspired a lot of this so a lot of what you're seeing here is you're correct absolutely completely real i still feel like i need to nail this anthony hopkins impression <laughs> <laughs> you know what you look like to me, Agent Starling, with your high heels and your cheap perfume? You look like a rube. I know you're trying to... Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't the movie, folks. That was Lancer. <laughs> These are not clips. Sons of the Lambs, for whatever reason, didn't disturb me that much, but I think because I didn't actually see the regular version until I was well into college. When I first saw it, it, <laughs> was, TV? it was a TV version, and there's a lot of scenes that are surprisingly removed from the TV version. Yeah, it, it probably, Put the lollipops in the basket. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> probably only takes an hour to watch it on TV. Yeah. I don't want to eat your skin. That's terrible. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> Turned into Charles Barkley. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, 
But I, it's a good choice, Hudson. It is a disturbing film. Hey, way to go, Thank Hudson. You. Thank you, Gabby. Good job, Hudson. Uh, Jordan, your number three is... My number three is Vertigo, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, starring James Stewart and Kim Novak. It's from 1958, and it is brilliant. But I, I bring it up because of one scene in particular. I saw this movie when I was, I think, 11. It scarred me for years. James Stewart is a former police officer who, I guess he retired because Mm -hmm. of an accident while uh, on the job. And so an old friend of his asked him to do some investigating into his wife. And James Stewart's character becomes obsessed with the wife. But this scene in particular where James Stewart and Kim Novak go to see the Redwoods, the Sequoias, they're walking in the forest and, and she gets real weird. thousand years or more. The oldest living things. Yeah. You've never been here before? No. What are you thinking? All the people who've been born and have died while the trees were not living. Their true name is Sequoia Sempervirens. Always green, ever living. I don't like them. Why? Knowing I have to die. And that first started tipping me off because I think it was maybe the first time that I was confronted with this sort of supernatural but non-religious idea of death that drove me to some sleepless nights. It, it You're really a serious kid, weren't you? It really yeah. <laughs> yeah, it really freaked me out. Because then they walk up to this cross section of a redwood and she points at it and she says, "Somewhere in here I was born." And there I died. It was only a moment for you. You, you took no notice. I, I don't think I'd ever heard anything like that. And it was the freakiest thing to hear this live woman say that she had died mm. at this point in history. And then she's, she's wearing this white coat and she has white hair. And she just she says that and then she just walks into the woods, leaving James Stewart there. And she looks like a ghost walking through these monstrous trees. And then she disappears behind a tree. And it just like haunted me forever. And I, it's funny because I've talked over the last... 24 years I've talked to a lot of people about this movie and they're like yeah I didn't think that movie was scary but for me I think it was probably the first quote-unquote scary movie I saw and it it really got under my skin and and bothered me for a long time and I still really get chills when I watch that part of that movie my question is is there a horizigo (laughs) (laughs) that was a joke (laughs) it it was uh not that I know of okay it's a fear of being horizontal (laughs) yeah like laying down, you get dizzy just like Vertigo, you get dizzy standing up. I think it's still called Vertigo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, think I think that was actually Hitchcock's next movie. Yeah. Or Vertigo. Vertigo. It was the sequel to Vertigo. Yeah, I didn't... I, to, to me, this is a film that, you know, I, I... And again, it's all personal, but I wouldn't put this on a list of disturbing films. I would put it on a list of eerie films. It, it's a great movie. This, this movie's interesting because it's it seems to just continue to climb the ladder of well-regarded films. Uh, I know that the British, uh, probably the most prestigious list of elite films, if you will, was is the British Sight and Sound poll that's done every 10 years. On well, the last one, uh, Vertigo dethroned Citizen Kane, finally, as the, as the number one film of all time. So this is a movie that many well-regarded critics and directors believe is the greatest film of all time. Eerie is something that very much disturbs me mm. because it, it creates this tone and atmosphere where my my imagination can run with that. Right. And so a lot of times very specific thriller, horror, scary movies don't bother me because it doesn't allow room for my imagination to run. This one with this woman who you can't figure out and is talking about being dead, that's what terrifies me and disturbs me. Yeah, I, I think the reason a lot of people probably don't find it so as disturbing as you did is because a lot of people are triggered by more visual things. There's not a lot visual. I mean, there's no there's no blood or gore mm-hmm. in this movie. But, you know, I think you're a pretty cerebral person, and I think that this does hit on a more cerebral level. So it kind of makes sense why this would trigger something for you that it doesn't... It's ideas. Exactly. To me, this exactly. movie's all about the ideas planted in your head that, you know, I don't know, your mom would say the same thing. My the, mom comes up in a lot of these podcasts. <laughs> My college thesis was on Vertigo and wow. Rear Window and really? uh, Rope, yeah. Really? Jimmy Stewart, Alfred Hitchcock yeah. connections. I have no idea what my thesis was. <laughs> <laughs> but, these uh, movies are good. Yeah, these movies are good. That was the thesis? <laughs> yeah. I like these movies? Yeah. No, it was something about how Jimmy Stewart was totally different for Hitchcock than his n- typical roles. Huh. Now, Vertigo was lost for an, some amount of time, wasn't it? Uh, I don't think that's true. You don't think it's true? <laughs> it, what do you it, mean lost? Like it, Hitchcock it filmed and couldn't it? Like it had a bad print, and then I think in the when we were in college, they cleaned it up. 
It was, oh. or at least at risk of like not yeah. being even like view- viewable. I just meant like we, you'd go to Blockbuster and like, we can't find it. I really want to rent it. Sorry, we, we lost every we've copy. Got the, no, we've got the boxes. Yeah, we got oh, the boxes. The tapes so are People gone. rented all of them. We don't have them. Vertigo is very creepy movie. Wound. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We keep hitting play and nothing's <laughs> happening. All right, give me your number three. David Fincher's 1997 thriller, The Game, starring Michael Douglas. So it's a story of a very rich banker in San Francisco who leads a solitary, lonely wife, no kids, no family, and his only family that we know of is a black sheep younger brother, played by Sean Penn, aforementioned. Can relate to that, right? Yeah. Yeah. And an ex-wife. Oh, I forgot about that. An ex-wife who was recently remarried and... Uh, has a kid so and is good. pregnant with a second kid. Anyway, he's just a guy that's just lonely. He eats TV dinners by himself. It's not TV dinners. He has his own chef. Oh, I, have his, <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking of him, like eating up something in the microwave late <laughs> no, at night in that giant no, kitchen. She leaves like yeah, a, leaves it's his birthday and she leaves even, a burger This and may not even be the movie I'm thinking about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so his brother comes and tells him he gets him this present. It's basically a game and he wants him to show up at a certain office the next day. And then from there, the guy's life just goes crazy right he essentially gets integrated into the game and it just destroys him i know it's not a scary movie and didn't disturb me that i kept up nights and nights after this movie because of it but it's just one of the two films that i can remember seeing in my life where i couldn't stand up at the end of the movie because my legs were weak wow it just affected me that much and i don't know if that's disturbing or scary or just that intense are you sure your legs just didn't fall asleep (laughs) (laughs) one of two times that my legs (laughs) fell asleep (laughs) Yeah, this would I I put this on a list of um, most disturbing movies if you're a. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, see, this to me is I would put this on like most beautiful and life affirming movies, like ones that will like change your life for the better. Certainly not disturbing. See, the movie's so dark up until the final spoiler alerts until the final three minutes. Yeah. I mean, that scene at the end, there's a scene at the end of this movie where something happens on a rooftop that just devastated me at the theater. And I don't know if it was because I have siblings or... No, Gibby, much as I mock you for for this, um, I I have seen other people have a similar reaction to this film. I remember watching this uh, about a year or two after it came out with a group of people. And one of the girls that I watched it with was so horrified by this movie that she wouldn't talk to me for a couple of days because I was the one who had rented it and suggested it. What? Uh, Yeah, she was actually angry about this movie and, and what it was what and I, I asked her I said explain this to me because I'm not getting it and she said I'm so horrified that they would put him through this just to teach him a lesson that disturbed her so much and I don't, wow. I don't know if that was part of it for you Interesting. but the notion that, that you would do something like that to someone that you yeah. supposedly care about just horrified her Huh. Yeah, no, I think what, what hit me more is just that the, basically the end when he shoots Sean Penn it's like this guy's got nothing left in his life after he'd come to this point where he's kind of been life affirmed and that he wants to live and that he wants to connect with people. I don't know. It just hmm. hit me in a weird way. And there's also the whole part of it about the absent parent or the death of the parent and having a parent that had died when I was younger too. It's just, I guess that hit me in a way. Is it that you're an incredibly wealthy investment banker yeah. who's a total jerk to everyone in their life? That's pretty close to my, my actual life. Although I feel like you could name any other David Fincher movie that would be more disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, but there's a lot of things that happen to him during the movie that, like Wayne's friend had talked about, is very disturbing yeah. stuff. Now, I found that interesting. Him. And, you know, I mean, you know, movies are subjective. So yeah. Lance, now we get to the disgusting stuff. Yeah, so this is where we start Sicko. to get into some darker waters. I'm just going to plug my ears for yeah. the next It's probably a good move. Because our next film is Pierre Pasolini's 1975 I'm not even calling it a movie. I don't know what oh, to call this. It is a movie. Um, Sallow, 120 Days of Sodom. Sallow um, to my little friend. <laughs> <laughs> so I was I was nervous about watching this before I saw it for the first time because I had heard it was not uncommon for people to throw up during it. I can't get through a segment without talking about Roger Ebert. So <laughs> interesting fact, Ro- Roger Ebert owned the laser disc of this for years but never watched the movie because he was so intimidated by the content. Died wow. before he ever saw it. Yep. Wow. It was, was originally he still shot watching laser discs when he died. <laughs> Seems like he would have. You think he would have upgraded to the Blu-ray or something? He was he was old school. Well, the, I don't think the Blu-ray <laughs> old, old school meaning going back to 1985. <laughs> he wanted real quality. Yeah. 
So Pasolini had uh, he he was a well known director at this point, and he decided he wanted to make a film that was indigestible for mainstream audiences. And my friends, let me tell you, he succeeded. There's very little plot here. It's set in the northern Italian state of Salo, and it it takes place in the waning days of World War II, where four fascist dignitaries, understanding that their time of of reigning is about to be up, decide to go out with a bang. And what they decide to do is uh, kidnap eight teenage boys and girls, put them in a palace, and torture them for 120 days. What happens next? Nothing. That's the whole plot. People getting tortured for 120 days. I could talk a lot about this movie. I'm going to sum it up by reading something that an online critic, Matthew Decim, said that I think pretty much nails this movie. Here's what he had to say. I think Sallow is an interesting movie to think about in the abstract, but watching it is poisonous. For me, it raises the question of at what point filming atrocities is itself reprehensible. Pasolini clearly didn't intend for Sallow to be pleasurable to watch, and I wouldn't say art has to have a purpose or be enjoyable to be good. But in this movie, human beings are reduced to objects. They suffer, cry, beg for their lives, betray their companions, and die. There's no interest in them except as bodies. Sallow was conceived as a kind of Brechtian F.U. gesture from Pasolini to his audience. His stated intention was to produce an indigestible movie, Mission Accomplished. There are a lot of people who disagree with me here. I'm one of them. I know you are. And this this is a movie that, and I, you know, I'm not big into censorship. I think that there's a place for a lot of movies. I've never been able to figure out the place for this one. I think at least on some level, this movie wasn't meant for us. It's the artist making a statement. I don't I don't think that I don't think it's pure shock. I don't think it's pure just him trying to make an indigestible movie. Is that the word that she used? That was the word he used. <laughs> right, right, that's what I mean. <laughs> I mean can I can I disagree with one thing you said? Absolutely. Uh, Pasolini, because you said this wasn't meant for many people. This was and this this is a quote I found from Pasolini. This cracked me up. When asked who is the film's audience, he said, It's for everyone. For people like me. First of <laughs> Those are two very contradictory <laughs> statements right, right, for everyone, for people like me. I picture him with Tommy Wiseau's voice. For everyone. Um, okay, so like I get it. I know that all art is not for mass audiences, and that's kind of the point of a lot of that art. But it just seems to me that if you have something to say, and especially if it's something about the state of the world that you're living in, the state of the politics where it's at, that you would want that to reach the widest audience possible. It just seems to me that your goals should try to align in that way and make, you know, something that makes a point, but also is digestible. Yeah. And and let me be clear too. I'm not saying he should not have made it or he shouldn't have not have been allowed to make it. But I think when you make a piece of art, you immediately put it out there for criticism. And Mm -hmm. my, my criticism is, I don't know what you're trying to do with this movie. When your stated goal is to just make a movie that's indigestible, I don't find that to be a very noble goal. But we also don't get to to hear him say anything after he made the movie, which I'm not even sure he Did he, die? he feels he like he he, commits, he was murdered in 1975. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's a, that was another related piece of trivia here. No, not related to the movie. There, 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 there are, are there theories. are. Ru- so let me let me let me get to that real quick. Pasolini was killed. He was murdered, um, and uh, he was murdered before this film came out. Wow. There have been there are beliefs by some that making such an offensive movie had something to do with him being murdered. Well, the political aspects of the movie. There are theories that it was a political assassination. Right. So this may be the only movie on our list that actually got someone killed. Well, this was not widely available for a very long time, right? This was banned in so many countries and still is banned in some countries. I guess I guess what it comes down to me for me, Jordan, is that if you're going to try and do something effective or make a message with a film, I shouldn't be sitting here years after you made it still trying to figure out what that message was. And if so, if I'm still trying to figure it out and we're still discussing and debating it, that tells me somewhere he fell short because I don't know what the point was. But I, I don't think that's what art has to do. I'm not in any way making an argument that, oh, you should watch this movie, you're going to love it. Yeah. Because I, I don't think that it's a movie that's meant to be loved. I mean, I don't love this movie. I'm glad I watched it. It's not, nor should an artist be required to make movies just so people will love them. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and artists shouldn't be making art to make it palatable. Right. I just struggle to see what the purpose or point was or why or what he was saying that needed to be said that was important. Absolutely. Well, but but the, the argument for you. But the argument can be made that there are a lot of people that do According to Pasolini, it was for me. It's for everyone. <laughs> also for him. Yeah, I think that was Pasolini. The movie being is for Pasolini. But th- there are lots of people so that, that know that know this movie and and feel like it is very important. And Do you very think worthwhile. there are people that like you know come home long day of work and they like crack open a beer and then they put on Sallow and just chill out and come on kids, Sallow's on. There's <laughs> a family around. <laughs> Guys, yeah. my number two. This is a pretty tonal shift Indiana between Jones and the Temple of Doom. Uh, the second part in the Indiana Jones trilogy. Uh, actually, a prequel to Raiders. Which I didn't realize until recently. 
That was a pretty. Cool I never realized yeah, that as a kid. Do not. Yeah, I didn't as a kid either. Going from 120 days of torture to a wacky archaeologist <laughs> adventure. Right, hold on, I can defend this. Oh, please do. This is the darkest of the three in the trilogy. Of those three movies, yes. <laughs> um, and Spielberg and Lucas later said that uh, the darkness was attributed to both of them having gone through a recent breakup before writing and making this movie. Spielberg with his girlfriend, Lucas with his wife. Uh, released in 1984, I saw this, I'm sure as you guys did, uh, as a kid. Uh, and it was rated PG, for all intents and purposes, a family movie. And that's why it's on this list, not because of its being the most horrifying thing I've ever seen, but because of its intended audience. This movie contains eating live snakes, monkey brains, and a severed eye floating in soup, which um, I a, swear... A I, monkey eye. Hang on. For, the, for the record, I just talked about a movie where they eat something a way worse. severed yep. eye in soup, which I still oh, think about every time, every time I eat soup, I'm afraid that an eye is going to float up in it. Now, I was a kid when <laughs> I watched this. So I'm weird. Like, the same fear. Yeah. <laughs> this introduced me to the concepts of child slaves, black magic, human sacrifice, and drinking blood. Uh, which, by the way, this, along with young Sherlock Holmes, had me convinced that there were like secret cults everywhere. Yeah, there are. To kidnap me. And young Sherlock Holmes, that was a disturbing movie. It was disturbing. And of course, most notably, ripping a man's heart out and then burning him alive. But, and like, you know, describing all that, I feel like this script or this movie in a different director's hands would be a very different movie. Spielberg puts a polish on everything, he puts a sense of fun on everything, he puts. You know, he's, he's Spielberg, so this was... It's, it is. I mean, this is like the wackiest of the three movies. It, it is the wackiest. The, the First of all, there are four. There are four of these movies. No, there are not. No, yes, there are. Three. There are four of them. This is the wackiest of the three movies that people like. <laughs> in the, I like the, the 80s, In the 80s, ripping a man's heart out and burning him alive was way less acceptable than it is now. <laughs> so things have changed a lot. I adore this movie. Me too. Yeah, it's my I favorite. I absolutely love Temple of Doom because I think it captures the spirit more than any of the Indiana Jones films. Of burning a man alive. No, of 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 the those original Saturday morning serials, Saturday afternoon serials. No, I didn't watch them, but I know what they were trying to accomplish. And it was just that sheer it, adrenaline adventure thing that, mm-hmm. that that boys grew up loving. I don't know. I, I boys just, of the nineteen thirties and boys 40s. of the nineteen thirties, which I have a lot in common with. Um, no, but it, it's just it's just absolute fun. And and while you're right on on it on the surface, those things are disturbing. They're done in a way that's so over the top that they just don't disturbing them. Now, granted, yeah. when I was seven, they right. probably disturbed me more, but child, I can watch yeah. them now and they don't really yeah. bother me because I, I know it's just supposed to be like schlocky even fun. even as a kid, they were, it was kind of fun moments. Like, right. you're like, ooh, icky. I mean, yeah. like with the snake stuff, not so much with the... Yeah, you were, you were horrified, but you were laughing like, oh, at the same time. Yeah. So, yeah. okay, but here's, I'll tell you what I found most scary, though. The scariest part of this movie is when Indiana Jones uh, drinks the blood and he turns like evil and he hits mm-hmm. short round. Like, that to me was the most disturbing part of it because to me, there's nothing scarier than a person you trust doing something horrible or doing something unspeakable that a person that you think is incapable of that doing that and that's actually going to come back in my next one but i wasn't the only one that found it disturbing because temple of doom along with gremlins were the reason that pg-13 rating uh was created by the mpaa wow after um parents i'm assuming parents and lots of people complain that there was some dark material in those movies were rather dark movies all righty jordan are you ready for your number two my number two is the omen from 1976, directed by Richard Donner. It was his breakout movie. It stars Gregory Peck and Lee Remick. Also, correct me if I'm wrong, but he was part of the Donner Party? The wrong Richard party. Donner party. <laughs> wrong party. The Omen is about the spawn of Satan. Yeah, it's a pretty good uh, description. That's a good start. It's, it's about a child born of a woman and a jackal. It's about the Antichrist. So you'd think it'd be hilarious. <laughs> it was written by David Seltzer, who was an uncredited writer of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Also of the Seltzer Party. <laughs> and the, the cinematographer on it was uh, Gil Taylor, who... Did a little movie called Star Wars right after this. I've heard of that. He did Doctor Strangelove. He did Hitchcock's Frenzy and Polanski's Cul-de-Sac. I say all this because... Because you want to bore the hell out of everyone? No. <laughs> I, well, I find these things fascinating. But especially that this is a movie from 76 about the Antichrist as a child. And it stars Gregory Peck, who is giant star. You know, these, these very well-respected actors and successful crew. It was made for only a little over $2 million. So it wasn't a big budget film, but having Gregory Peck attached, which he had been retired for seven years before this. And I didn't I, know that. He was retired at this point. I don't, I don't know if it was official, but he hadn't been in anything in seven years. This is a film that it, it, it has always been odd to me that Gregory Peck did it. Like it just, and not because it's not a great movie. It is. I, I would put this on a list of best horror films. I probably wouldn't include it on a list of most horrifying 
terrifying uh, because I just I think it's dark fun to me. Yeah. And there is some fun to this one, but for me, especially, I think I saw this for the first time probably 15 or 16 years ago and dealing with something that is potentially very real as the Antichrist and the Book of Revelations. Well, you and, thought and your daughter was the Antichrist for a little while, didn't you? <laughs> After she was born. Still do. So this is this still home do. for you. Yeah. Still do. But she was only born four years ago and not when I originally saw this. But mm. I think this is this movie is probably what made me think that. Right. One other crew, Jerry Goldsmith won an Academy Award for this. It was his first time. He'd been nominated 10 or 11 times before this. Goldsmith party. <laughs> excellent, excellent joke. This is a movie also that comes on a lot of lists of... Uh, Productions that were cursed. Yeah, Have you yeah, seen yeah. these? Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, you know, Poltergeist is mm-hmm. one. I mean, there, there's several of these, but there were all sorts of crazy tragedies that befell this, where people either—I don't know if anybody actually died on the set, but people almost died. I think wasn't a guy hit by lightning or something, or his plane was hit there by were, lightning. There were a number of planes that were hit by lightning. Uh, a lot there, of lightning. There were a lot of which. There's lightning in the movie. The freakiest one is, I, I believe, the the photographer in the movie. I can't remember the name of the actor, but he—I think his girlfriend some years later was actually decapitated in a car accident. Just like happened in the film, or close to what happened in the film. He's decapitated by a sheet of glass that comes off of a truck in the film. In quite possibly the, the... the greatest death scene of any movie ever. Is that the David Warner character? Yes, well, David this Warner. Is, Thank you. I have actually seen this one before, which is, you know, hardly, I haven't seen hardly any of the other of these movies. And that's what I remember about it is it's like each death scene like kind of topped the one before. Like it was a movie of like cool death right, scenes. Right, but, but, like but not in like a Final schlocky, Destination. Not right, in a schlocky yeah, yeah, um, right. Final you know, Destination slasher kind of it way. It maintained its serious tone throughout it. Absolutely. Yeah. I still think this is one of the scariest movies ever and, and it, it disturbed me because of the religious content, which I believe I read the, the, the original concept of this story was was thought up by, I don't know that he's a minister, but he ended up being like the sort of the religious advisor on this film. And before the movie, he claimed to be a born again Christian, but he didn't believe in the devil. And this movie, after the, they made this movie, he believed in the devil. Yeah, the, the ending of this film is, is, a, is a, it's a pretty famous shot too. I mean, it is extremely haunting. The story is that Richard Donner was talking to the boy while they're doing the shot. And he's like, okay, now turn around, look really mean at the camera. And so the boy did it. He said, don't laugh, don't laugh. And the, and the boy started to laugh. And that's when they caught that menacing smile <laughs> that, that he gives the camera. And it, that just sells it. I know that a lot of horror movies do a lot of borrowing from each other, but there's there's one particular thing in The Omen that, that was borrowed to such a degree. Damien rides this tricycle around the house and it just screams The Shining to me, which yeah. would, of course, be made four years later. That it seems like, I, I don't have any proof of it, but it seems like Kubrick. It would have been hard for him to well, think we about that. to fight about film right now. Uh-oh. Because <laughs> that's my number two. Stanley Kubrick's adaptation of the Stephen King novel, The Shining, coming out in 1980. You know, I'm not really going to go into the plot details. Basically, it's just, uh, well, apparently I am. <laughs> Why wouldn't <laughs> you? Here we go. Right now. It's an uh, aspiring novelist and kind of a failure as a father and an alcoholic. He's a failure as an alcoholic. A failure as <laughs> an not alcoholic, a good alcoholic father. Not a good alcoholic, not a good father. So he takes a job as the off-season innkeeper at a giant hotel in Colorado. It's just him and his wife and young son out there. And it's how the isolation and loneliness basically drives him mad. And is the hotel haunted? It may be. Depends on whether you've read the novel or not. Yeah. Anyway, I remember this, much like uh, Silence of the Lambs, the first time I saw this was a television version. It was one Saturday or Sunday afternoon. There's a television version of The Shining? Yeah. yeah. Not, the, not the one with the guy from Wings. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Start the guy from Wings. and uh, oh, no. that, you, you saw the one with wing, the Wings guy first? That's the one you're talking about. No, I'm talking about uh. this one. <laughs> I saw this Stanley Kubrick shining on TV. It was a edited oh, for television. Oh, oh, oh. If, if okay. you're listening to this and you're confused right now, join the club. So I don't know what we? they're talking about. There was a miniseries. Yeah, there was a miniseries. I know, that's why I also in the nineties. Yeah, yeah. No, I get that. I just don't understand why yeah. we're still talking about it. Traditionally, Stephen King did not like the Stanley Kubrick version of The Shining and wanted it redone, and he finally got that in '97 with the television version, wow. starring the man from one yeah, of the men starring from the Wings. guy from Wings. And then was he happy with that one? He said he was. He liked it better than the. Stanley Although Kubrick I think version. now wow. he he ends up. Saying how he likes the Stanley Kubrick version. Oh, he has love said you, that. Love you, Stephen King. Well, that man your, has no taste. <laughs>
<laughs> anyway, The Shining I saw on television. I just remember being kept awake at nights for a couple nights after it, and it's just a scary movie. There's oh, even the TV version was scary. Yeah. yeah. Story about this one. So Julian, my son, he's 13 now. He's never, obviously never seen The Shining. He did see Twister in the drive-in scene at Twister. They're showing The Shining, Shining yeah. and he was scared to death of it. Just shows like the two one like shot. twin sisters, yeah, yeah, and the kid on the tricycle or whatever. He was scared to death of that. Like kept him up at night just think, from the the brief. Yeah, scene. I mean, there's so I many think, creepy. I think shots that in the movie. is what a lot of what really powers this movie yeah. as far as being disturbing and scary. Visuals. Is, the, is the imagery. Yeah, yeah, that, it's that very you can't, that, you, that won't leave. Right, and I think that's definitely what disturbed me. Is I mean, just the whole tone and look of the movie is creepy. It works. It works. It does this brilliant contradiction where you're in a giant space but you're isolated, mm-hmm. and there is such a fear, a psychological fear that comes with those mm. two things. I would much rather be caught in a small room than in a giant warehouse. There's just something so terrifying about the possibilities that come with being in a massive hotel where there are hundreds and hundreds Hiding of Hiding around the corner. Yeah. yeah. But but I don't. I think this movie is unsettling and terrifying before we even get to the Overlook Hotel. Somehow, and I, I don't understand how it's possible, but somehow the opening shots of this movie... Just the car driving? Are, yes, with the, and the music it's and the helicopter shots. Yeah. Are, there's just something so terrifying about it and unsettling about it. I've never been able to put my finger on well, it. Well, I think it immediately sets you off in like isolation mm-hmm. because there, I mean, it's a helicopter shot so it's got expansive land and all it is is one car. And you're just falling. There's nobody Ooh. else around. And, and so the music you know, is... Yeah. Now, I don't remember, but were there steady cam shots in this movie? Yeah, yes, this was it the was the original steady cam. He oh, smiled. Yeah. That was a smile. Yeah, like, sure. <laughs> I just mean that every shot was a steady cam <laughs> yeah. shot. But famously, it's the tricycle shots that the steady cam was invented for. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, of, one of the interesting things, too, is just how abusive Stanley Kubrick was on the set of this movie. Yeah, yeah. the, the stories about, I'm so bad with names, Wendy. I, I think one problem that a lot of people had with the movie is just how quickly Jack Nicholson goes crazy. Uh, or is in the book, it kind of is a slow festering and it just sort of... I mean, that I, th- I feel like that's sort of a Jack Nicholson problem, <laughs> yeah, where he looks, problem. he looks and seems crazy <laughs> before he starts oh, acting hey. that way. Yeah. But, but to me, that adds... I mean, there's something menacing about everything. I mean, Kubrick starts it so menacingly yeah. that it doesn't matter. It's just part of the tone. But there, there's a weird, relatable part of Jack Torrance. Jack Nicholson's character to me that of this like man who's trying to work and he's always being interrupted and I think that there's a, a part in this weird there's only essentially four characters in this movie and maybe they're all somewhat relatable to me it's always been Jack Torrance that's yeah. trying to get work and you're Kid won't let you work. Yeah. This podcast will be used by the police several years from now. Jordan <laughs> is arrested for various. Not true. <laughs> no, I think it's a, I mean, I do think it's pretty good. I mean, in, in some ways, it's a film about writer's block because that's kind of what huh. leads him down the path again. So, folks, if you have trouble writing something and you're an artistic person, don't uh, murder your yeah, family. Yeah, don't do that. To loosen up, you could like write the same phrase over and yeah. over again, maybe. Yeah. Do you know if the book was written before The book was after? written before the movie. No. <laughs> Before Stephen King sobered <laughs> up. I guess it would have been before. Yeah, it was before. It was like 76, 77. It, was it the seems like he, he would have been thinking about the, Yeah, you that. know, when I saw this on your list, I was actually a little nervous about talking about it because there's so, there's so much that could be said about this movie and yet paradoxically it's also hard to talk about this movie because mm-hmm. to your point earlier Jordan it is so image based and it's hard to describe an image you you, you really have got to see this film to understand it's hard yeah. to describe why it's so effective and Let's creepy and horrifying right me, me yeah. saying there's all this blood that comes out of the elevator it, yeah doesn't really doesn't bring work. home the horror of it Gibby probably wishes that we could go back and do this over again but we can't because Lance's next pick is irreversible no, we can't like reverse it <laughs> yeah no, I, this okay. is a segue. stop well just stop <laughs> imagine with me you're at the con film festival in 2002 no I'd you have to. to you're at the premiere of a film called irreversible gasper no no a's i don't know how to say it. it's, it's a no french way. film made in no 2002 2400 people in attendance 200 walk out three people faint pass out right in the middle of the movie wow. uh, newsweek called this the most walked out movie of the year that year um, the story follows. Newsweek calls it. And the Vatican loved it. <laughs> <laughs> the, the plot is is pretty simple. The story follows three people. Um, 
two two men, one woman, over the course of a single traumatic night, and the story is told in reverse chronological order. It's famous for two scenes, and these are scenes that are so brutal that they're often referred to online with their own titles. The first is the fire extinguisher scene. This is a scene where a man's head is destroyed by a fire extinguisher to the point that it no longer looks like a human head. I don't even really understand how they did it. Is that like that scene in Drive? Still don't understand it. The second scene that that this is most famous for is a brutal 11-minute rape scene that, that is so vicious that Monica Bellucci, the actress who played the character, has has actually never been able to watch it in its entirety to this day. She deserves every single award that could possibly be heaped on her. She deserves all the Oscars ever for this. So you, you hear that and you go, yeah, I don't want to watch that. But what I'm going to say is that... <laughs> yeah, I don't want to watch it. This, this is a great movie. It um, is. I'm going to call it a great movie, and there are two reasons. Film, as an artistic medium, has the power to put us in situations and make us aware of realities that we couldn't possibly understand otherwise. As a man, I can't can't understand rape. It, it's not something I deal with. It's not something I have to be afraid of. This movie helped make it so palpable to me. That, to me, that was important. And I'm, I, I don't want to go as far as saying that every man should have to watch that scene because I, I don't think a lot could handle it. I could barely handle it. But there's a value in that. There, there's a value in seeing something horrible so that you can understand. And that was important to me. That was something that I never want to watch the scene again, but I'm glad I saw it once because it just shifted my perspective so much. And I think that speaks so much to the power of a film when it can do something like that. I thought this movie was incredibly powerful not just in its overarching story and in the way that it's told like you're talking about lance but one of may perhaps the most powerful thing in it to me was of course because it's me this detail during the rape scene I, I think i know where you're headed with this which shook me more than the rest of the movie this scene is is one shot and for the majority of the shot the camera is sitting on the floor and it's in a like a some sort of it's it's in an alley Basically, an under, yeah, it's in an underground alley. Like a tunnel. Sort right, of. a tunnel that goes under a highway. So we can see behind Bellucci and her um, assailant are in the foreground. And way in the background at the back of the tunnel, about halfway through, we just see this figure walk into the shot, stand for a few seconds and look at what's happening and then turn and walk away. Right. And to me, that's no way saying, hey, everybody, that's you. Yep. Wow. That's you back there. We can't, it's, you're just sort of a silhouette, but that's you seeing this and walking away. Yep. This is not, this is a tragedy that was totally preventable had you done something about huh. it. Interesting fact about that, that was actually an accident. That was an assistant director who walked into the shot on accident. And really? no, uh, the director decided to keep it because, wow. because he realized what? what he had accidentally captured something wow. incredibly important. Wow. Yeah. So I've never seen this movie, and I—I um, I mean, I, honestly, I'll probably never will see it. But I think you guys make a very compelling case that this movie should exist and has a good message to it. And I find all what you're saying fascinating. The thing that really made me think about this in different terms, though, is Jordan and I had lunch with oh Lance too, had lunch with a friend of ours who's a a, a producer friend of ours who is uh, a woman, and she was kind of talking about these types of films and how important they are. And it made me realize, as a white male, it's very easy for me to say I. I want to plug my ears and not think about these atrocities that are happening to the world because I am not a victim of these atrocities. But when you look at, like she mentioned that imagine what your perspective is where half the people in the world can physically overtake you. Imagine what it's like to be a person of a different color, to walk into a room and to be treated differently. And I think that's something that film can do as difficult as it is to put yourself in the shoes of somewhere else. That's what film does better than anything else. Mm -hmm. And me personally, I have reasons for not wanting to do that but I, I'm really torn because I can see the value in that I can see the value in, in putting myself in those shoes to be able to relate to other people to be able to take myself out of the world that I'm in every day and to, to feel what that's like and how important that can be yeah and that's it's a great point because you don't think about if you're a man and you're listening to this you don't think about Louis CK did a did a a bit and you know it, it's a funny bit but he talks about how insane it is that a woman ever says yes to a man who asks her out on a date because because it's it, it's such a dangerous position to be Dangerous. in how many men do you know who carry you know pepper spray around in their keychains you know how many men mm-hmm. do you know say oh what i like about her is that she makes me feel safe men don't have to think about that kind of thing mm-hmm. we never have to think about that sort of thing Gosh. and this was a movie that just put in perspective for me 
what a woman goes through. Not and, and again, most women will never be raped, but all women at some point will have to deal with this issue of safety and the, the idea that half of the population could you know, physically overpower and kill them if they really wanted to. That's something I need to understand. That's something that is important for me to know and go yeah. through life remembering. Absolutely. And, and you know, I, I think this is this is one thing I love about movies so much is just that it, it literally has the power to make you a better person. And yeah. as hard as this movie was to watch, it gave me a perspective. And I think it, it in its own small way, did make me more aware. I don't know if I want to go as far as say a better person, but it made me a more aware, sensitive person to this particular topic. Mm-hmm. And for mm-hmm. that, I, I am forever grateful to this movie. Okay, back to the jokes. I'll probably make fun of this one. <clears throat> My number one most disturbing film. Okay, before I say what this movie is, I'm going to tell a little story. When I was in my early 20s, uh, I was driving to my parents' house one night. They lived kind of out in the country, this tiny, windy road. You could only see a few feet ahead of me. You know, it's dark. My lights are on. An entire family of deer steps out in front of my car. I hit three deer at once, and I have this guttural reaction of uncontrollable screaming where <laughs> like you know where it just comes out like you don't choose to what scream. What did it sound like? Yeah, can you do it for us? No, we'll, we'll put a clip in. <laughs> oh no. Yeah, that's basically it. It was just this natural response like you could, like I couldn't keep from screaming. Okay, this next film is the only time that that's ever happened to me in a movie theater. Wow. Wait, you screamed wow. throughout the movie? No, once, one time. Wow. <laughs> Three this, times. This movie is Frailty. Um, uh, which I can understand if you haven't heard of that movie. It was a little-known movie, uh, Bill Paxton's directorial, directorial debut. Hudson, um, Hudson, Hudson, screaming at this movie will make you a man. Hudson, thanks for coming to see my movie. Bill Paxton, it's great to have you. It's called Frailty. You'll probably scream like a little girl. So, this movie came out in 2001, a little scene film starring Matt McConaughey as a man who visits the FBI claiming he has information on a serial killer known as the God's Hand Killer. He tells him that the God's Hand Killer is his brother. He and his brother were raised by their father, played by Bill Paxton, and he raised them to believe that he could identify demons disguised as humans, and it was their job to rid the world of them, meaning he would murder them with an axe in front of his two boys. So, uh, a bit of a bizarre childhood. Lots of twists and turns throughout and I won't give them all away but the scene that I specifically want to point at is Bill Paxton trying to get the oldest son to kill a victim for the first time so this is a person who he believes to be a demon uh, and he's trying to get his son to kill him Um, the victim is tied up in the basement the oldest son is holding the axe and just when he thinks he's about to kill the guy he slams the axe into his own dad's chest and Bill Paxton's kind of the bad guy uh, in this movie so you think that he's kind of saved the day and then he turns and begins to untie the victim and when he takes the tape off his mouth the victim screams and he turns to see his little brother rushing over to chop the man's head off and when I first saw this moment in this theater I (laughs) screamed not like a horror movie like having a good time scream but a guttural lost control over my voice scream How many people, other people were in the theater? Uh, me, I, don't I don't know. I like to imagine there's another pa- podcast being recorded somewhere <laughs> else where they're talking about it's like <laughs> a top three <laughs> weirdest movie <laughs> yeah. theater experiences, and they're talking about the time they saw Frailty, and some guy started screaming. I am yeah. pretty sure I saw that I was working at the movie theater when this came out. Not pretty sure. I'm 100% sure. Did I and see I'm pretty it sure you? you saw it at my theater, and I'm also sure that somebody came out and said, there's some man screaming in there. <laughs> Are you serious? There's a woman screaming yeah, in there. I'm not serious about that last part, but I am serious that you saw it in my theater. Probably. Uh, so I watched it again this week and still knowing what was coming goosebumps all over chill down my spine and i think it goes back to the thing i was talking about with temple of doom where indiana jones kind of turned on short round of having someone you trust who is incapable of doing something terrible doing something terrible so the kid in the movie is like 10 years old murdering a seemingly innocent person came out of nowhere and it got me so bravo mr paxton this was a scary film it disturbed me too and i was a little surprised that it didn't get you know more acclaim or even do as well as many worse horror films that year. It's a good movie. I liked this movie. I don't know if I loved it, but but I, I really enjoyed it. I really like thrillers, and this was a, a very good thriller to me. It does, however, have maybe the worst-looking DVD menu design I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. 
just yeah. atrocious. I, that's the next episode we're doing. Uh, top three <laughs> worst, worst. DVD menu design. But I, I love the setup of this movie. I, I love when in a setup you realize that uh, you're going to have this character that you just you're going to be so frustrated with Bill Paxton's character because he's not going to stop believing this crazy thing that he believes, and you're going to spend the next hour and a half going, "Why do you believe this? Please stop <laughs> believing this." Which you get this great character to relate with in that with his oldest son who does right. who does a great job. I can't figure out how I feel about the end of it with the the essentially the the bad guy winning. I think if you like thrillers, especially sort of horror, sort of supernatural, this is a, this is a really fun movie to watch because it feels like you get one good one every two or three years. Yeah. And, and this was a good one. Uh, right. Jordan, J-Man. Number one. Little bit of a shift here. Yeah. Now Jordan gets into Lance territory. <laughs> I hate that it's called Lance territory. <laughs> this is a little movie from 1987 called Necromantic. Uh, it's a German film. That's a surprise. Necromantic <laughs> has a K at the end of it. It was directed by Jörg Boot... Bert, uh, let me see. I practiced all morning how to say this. It, it reads like Butt Garrett. <laughs> it's not Butt Garrett. It's, it's boot garite. Jorg Butt Garrett. <laughs> Your, <laughs> Jorg Boot garite. It's about a, a young couple who decide to get into a little bit of necromancy. He's, as a young couple's do. <laughs> as they are one to do. He, uh, so that the boyfriend is this young guy that, that works for a, a street cleaning company that essentially cleans up car accidents. And he collects souvenirs from these car accidents. You mean like hood ornaments? Human hood ornaments. So <laughs> eyeballs and livers and fingers and things uh, like that. Just your standard sweet sweeper. And he, <laughs> <laughs> he collects them in jars at his house and he's got all of them displayed. And one day they find a body and the boss says to Robert, all right, you, you go ahead and take the truck and get rid of this. And so he has an idea on his way to disposing of the body that he'll just take the body home. So he takes this whole body home to his girlfriend, Betty, who's pretty pumped up about it. And uh, they proceed to have a necromantic relationship with this corpse. And uh, he loses his job because he's not very responsible and she leaves him. And so it's essentially the story of him trying to deal with not only his girlfriend being gone, but the fact that she took the corpse with her. Mm. That's what he's most disturbed about. Mm. Yeah, Boy meets girl, boy finds corpse. Girl leaves with corpse. Your typical romantic <laughs> comedy. Oh, so this, seen it a million times. This movie yeah. doesn't. I don't. I don't really think that this movie disturbs me. Not in the way that the other movie. Some of the other movies we've talked about. Well, that's good. It's your number me. one. Then you, you understand how one, number two, three one. works, right? I, I do understand it. I but I chose this as my number one because of the extreme disturbing content and because of how disturbing the world seems to find it. I saw this movie when I was in high school, and I think because of that, there there's just something really fun. I've always found. I mean, it's a. It's it's a fun movie because it it's so cheaply made. I think they probably made it for less than five hundred dollars. The, they made the corpse themselves. It's really they found convincing the and amazing. Themselves. Thank goodness, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, they, that was my question. I, I've never seen this movie, and I will never see this movie. But I brought uh, you the like, Blu-ray. What's, what's the tone of it? Like, is it playful or is it serious or what? Yeah, how are it's they? it's kind of all over the place with that, but not in a way that like one scene is this way and the next scene is the next, and so it doesn't have any consistency. It's all that way. It's all playful, but it's serious because it looks real. There's a scene in the middle that I don't think was filmed by Bootgerite, but I could be wrong about you that. You mean Buttgert? <laughs> Buttgerite. It's filmed by Bootgerite. Well, before I get into that into that scene, let, let's make this clear if it isn't already. I am the only one at this table that has watched this movie. None of these guys have the respect for me, <laughs> the podcast making process, or Buttgerite, the list process, or movies in general to actually watch <laughs> the movie that I put... <laughs> At number one on my list. I don't think there is a listener right now that would look at this DVD or read the synopsis of this and blame us. <laughs> any movie I hadn't seen on any of these lists, I watched. I do admire your integrity weeks. there, Jordan. That's I will give you that. very impressive. Because I respect movies and my friends. <laughs> Jeez. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I want to point out one thing. I, I did read a, um, a, a quote from uh, Jorg Butt Garrett. <laughs> 
where he said he, he You're never... You're not making any This friends. is interesting. He never intended to be a director, and this was just a film to rebel against the German rating system. He was just trying to shock people. That's what he said? He referred mm-hmm. to himself in the third person? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm not using the direct quote. Um, well, let me fight you with another quote from him that I, okay. that I watched come out of his mouth. Okay. He said, the, the, the problem is that the whole world is about sex and death, you know? These two things are so important to your life that you can't do a movie without it. I just wanted to go straight to the point. And shock people. Well, of course. I mean, so much of making a horror movie is wanting to shock people. If you don't shock yeah. people with a horror movie, I don't think you've done your job. No, you make, you make a good point. Let me let me say it, because I am kind of making fun of you a little bit here. Um, a little bit. There, 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 is, <laughs> there is a thing people say where like, oh, he was just trying to shock people. I don't know that that is a valid criticism when you're talking about horror films. It's okay to just shock people with a movie. And this movie, you know, even as I'm looking at the DVD, it does look like there is a fun notion to it. I mean, it does look like he's trying to be silly and over the top. And, I, you know, I can respect that. And I, I think that you are speaking to an aspect of the film, but it's not the whole thing. This can turn into a conversation about art in general, which we've already had somewhat. But regardless of even if his intentions were to only like be fun and shock people, I don't think that is like the, the movie becomes bigger than that. Uh, I have another Corpus movie. If you guys are interested in watching after hearing about this one, it is Weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's the same type of film movie. I've heard. Very similar. Fun. Was that Butt Garrett's next movie? <laughs> Jorg. Um, I believe Butt Garrett get Bernie's. was uh, the janitor on Weekend at Bernie's, I think, maybe? <laughs> I think people should watch this movie. I'll watch it a hundred more times. There, there's so a in, nod in it. Invite Jordan over to watch it with you. <laughs> yeah, Mom, if you're listening to this, or just do come, not do what come Jordan over to my, said. Come over to my house and watch it. Gibby, your number one most disturbing film. This is a 1983 film uh, about the aftermath of a nuclear holocaust called Testament. I don't know if, I mean, this is going to show how old I am, but there was like a run of movies in the early 80s about nuclear wars and the possibility and what would happen to life here after it. There was this one. There was another great one called The Day After. Uh, and then there's like War Games. and There was a um, British one called Threads. Threads. Yeah, Silkwood, Manhattan Project. Uh, and, and in a way, I don't know, it just paranoia of the time superman 4 i believe is also yeah <laughs> it's a great example of that yeah. yeah i saw it when i was probably six or seven years old and before everybody owned vhs players you could go to the video store and rent vhs players for a week or so and our family did <laughs> yeah we used to do my, that my parents yeah. rented it and one of the films they rented at one point was testament and for whatever reason they let me watch it i mean it's pg so it wasn't like it i mean there are it's, certain it's things in there apparently scandalous. there's some there's some racy things in there which <laughs> Anyway, it's basically, it's the film of uh, just a normal suburban family in a normal suburban town in Southern California, and um, the area is hit by a nuclear bomb, and what happens to their family and the town in the immediate aftermath and then the months after it. There's no horrific shots in this movie. I mean, no shots of people being blown away and skin flying off. There's little to no blood. So uh, I got to be honest with you, Gibby. When when you first put this on your list, I had never even heard of this movie. I I, I saw it on your list, and I looked looked at the description on IMDb, and I was fully prepared to come in here and (laughs) mock you for it. I have done a total 180 after seeing this film a couple of nights ago. This movie is a total curveball. And what I mean by that is you start watching it and it feels like an innocent upbeat 80s TV movie, which is what it originally was, right? It was it was it was filmed to be a TV movie that was so impressive to, uh, to you know the executives that they ended up releasing it. Um, yeah. as, a, as a feature film. The same route um, that uh, Necromantic took to the screen as well. Uh, PBS. <laughs> Just kidding. That's, a, that's a bald-faced um, lie. It, it, and, and what works about it is that it, it's got this little house on the prairie feel, and, and your experience with movies that look and feel like this is that things are going to get better, and they so totally don't. Um, <laughs> this is such a great example of quality filmmaking because everything is so subtle and gradual and this is a movie that is in such command of its pacing um you you reference another movie that came out uh the day after in 1983 and it, you're right it's not a bad movie but it's not nearly as effective because it shows everything mm-hmm. and this this is a this is a great example if you're a filmmaker of how not showing everything can be so much more powerful in that movie in day after we see exactly what's going on i really liked this movie and and, it, and as much as you can like a movie about this type of subject subject matter i, I was just blown away at how good it was i don't know that i've ever seen and i've seen a a lot of sad depressing horrific movies i'm not sure i've ever seen a movie as hopeless and just dryly depressing 
as this movie. Easily one of the most brutal movies I've ever seen. There's a scene where the mom takes the kids that are left and puts towels at the bottom of the garage door and turns on the car, basically saying, hey, are you guys ready? We're all going to die. And it's totally resigned to it. There's no there's no emotion. It's just, hey, this is what we're doing. Yeah. And at that point in the movie, I was sure that this was how the movie was going to end. That we were going to end with the three or four of them dead in the car. And that was it. And the movie didn't end a whole <laughs> whole lot Not much than happened. that. Well, here's, here's the last line of Ebert's review, and Ebert loved it. Um, gave it four stars. Said it was, he doesn't cry often at movies, but this is one that made him cry. But the last line of his review is, the last scene in which she expresses such small optimism as is still possible is one of the most powerful scenes in a movie I've ever seen. And I think that's something that, I mean, I, I remember this movie being real depressing mm-hmm. and a big downer. But there is a few scenes of like, just small hope that you can get in daily joy and even when the worst things happen and yeah they're they're, um, they're making the best of it yeah sure. there's there's this scene where it's just her and the oldest boy left she's just sitting at the fire and he comes in and just finds a battery and plays a Beatles song on the radio and and it's true i mean when you're in really dark places in your life because of death of those around you there are just little things like that that can pick you up unfortunately that boy cannot dance yeah that boy was a terrible yeah, I was dancer bad. i was so distracted by how he that could was, not that dance that was the most disturbing part of the movie <laughs> His dancing. There's no comic relief really at all in this movie. There's some some lighter scenes like the dancing scene, which is only sort of lighter. But I mean, every scene just gets more brutal and more brutal yeah. and more brutal. The, the one thing that kind of kept me giggling in this dark, twisted way is there's a friend of the family named Mike who owns a gas station and he has a son with Down syndrome. And I love that, that they put a kid with Down syndrome in this movie because you don't see that very often. And that excited me. I thought it was really great. But they're an Asian family and the boy's name is Hiroshi, which is obviously <laughs> yeah. Hiroshima. Yes. Not real subtle. Yeah. There. Not subtle Not subtle at all, but in this in this weird way. Hey, the origi- like his clever. original name was going to be Atom Bomb. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Nagasaki. <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, what's what's the director's name? Lynn something. Whitman, something like that. Uh, Buttgert. <laughs> she never worked in Hollywood. I mean, this was meant to be a TV movie, and even after the success of this, however much that was, like she still didn't direct any theatrical releases mm-hmm. that I know of. It's just been TV movies. I'm actually going to go back and try to watch some of the other movies that she made now. But selfishly, I wish that she had worked in Hollywood after this and, and been given big budgets and yeah, and something to really use her her talents for. <laughs> but maybe these TV movies are awesome. I'll, <laughs> did, I'll report back. It did get nominated for an Academy Award for Jane Alexander as the. She's great. The, the yeah, mom, she yeah. was great. That was the only nomination but it's a i mean it's a little film and you could tell it probably didn't take a whole lot of money to make <laughs> maybe this just is my own warped way of dealing with uh difficulty in a movie <laughs> Thing, things on, a, on the spectrum of disturbing to funny things can get so disturbing that they can become funny because they come so over the top yeah. and vice versa things yeah. can the comedy can become so abstract that it just gets weird and disturbing there are a couple of points where this movie does get to the point of such absurd <laughs> despair that i actually found myself laughing and again Again, not because I think like nuclear holocaust is funny, right. because it was the only way to deal with how insane some of the stuff was. Sure. Like that scene where the police chief just starts weeping yeah. in front of the whole town, and they're <laughs> like, uh, this is the guy in charge of law and order. Just it, the, the resignation people have to it becomes yeah. so weird. And, even and even the, the guy who, who had stood up earlier and been like, no, this is all terrible, he puts his coat around the, the police chief. <laughs> <laughs> the the scene where they ask the doctor what's going to happen to them, and he's even like, oh, you probably get really sick and it's going to be horrible he, he, and he just sits down yeah. he says nothing he, else he, after that he lists all these things that could go wrong he yeah. gives no hope and the way they wrote it everything he lists just sounds worse yeah. and worse <laughs> and worse yeah and worse apparently it is based on a short story but the short story was originally printed in miss magazine ms magazine it's like a woman's it's a magazine, fun magazine right? yeah. yeah i mean this, so it was written by a woman directed by a woman starring a woman i guess for lack of a better word it, it feels very feminine in this in this strong well, it's, it's all told from a mother's point of yeah. view which which is which is one reason it's so effective from yeah. the male point of view it would have been about survival and right. being tough and powering through which is what we're um, so used to in, yeah. in this situation yeah and, and in, in this sense rock. it's very much about her love for her children it's very much about watching her family disintegrate in front of her mm-hmm. and that's it's so powerful did you uh, recognize the boy the older boy no do you like movies about gladiators joey no it was Not the same really, kid joey, joey. Oh, it is. From what? Airplane. Uh, One of the most troubling and one of the most hilarious movies (laughs) ever. All right. Well, it's all uphill from here. Lance, your final number one. Okay. 
The film is Martyrs, Pascal Lagier's 2008 film. So anyway, I watched this movie at home one, one day while I was sick. When it was over, I rushed to the DVD player, <laughs> yanked the DVD out. I'd gotten it from Netflix, put it in the sleeve, and walked, nay, ran to <laughs> the mailbox because I wanted it out of my house that bad. And I, I, sa- I said in my mind to myself, not making this up, I'm not watching movies anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not joking. This it this movie this movie rattled me to the inner depths of my soul. Mm. And, and let me say first off, um, if you haven't seen this and you want to watch it, I'm going to spoil the hell out of this thing. So if you want to fast forward to the end of the podcast, go watch it first before you listen to this. Go for it. The film opens with a uh, a young girl named Lucy who is being held captive. She is being tortured. She is tied to a chair. We don't know why. And, and there's a reason we don't know why. We're going to find out later. But she escapes. She escapes her captors. And um, the, the movie flashes forward, I guess, about 10 years. And Lucy has become friends with a girl named Anna. And Lucy has made it her life goal to find the people who were torturing her. And she comes upon a suburban home where a perfectly normal, middle-class looking family lives. What she has determined is that the parents of this family are part of the group that tortured her when she was younger. She kills them. She kills their two teenage kids. And what we find out is that these parents are part of a cult. And the aim of this cult is to find out uh, the truth about, I will say, God and the afterlife, whether God exists, whether whether there's an afterlife after death. And they believe they can achieve this by torturing people, killing them, turning them into martyrs who will have visions from God. And those people then, before they die, can tell them what is in those visions. Who they, the, That will witness the afterlife. Right. That will witness the afterlife and can confirm and give them descriptions of yes. what it is, what it's like, all of that stuff. You mean get close enough to death that they experience but it's correct. Not, but it's not a near-death experience. It's something that transcends near-death, which is called martyrdom. So Anna and Lucy break in, kill the family, find a dungeon, base, a dungeon basement under the home where another young girl is currently being tortured. This brings back um, a certain regret for Lucy for not helping another girl who was being tortured with her years earlier, and Lucy ends up killing herself. The cult actually finds out what's going on. Somehow they're alerted or, or they're monitoring what's going on in the house. They come in, kill the other victim, and now Anna is the only one alive. And this is where Anna finds out the truth about this cult. What she also finds out is that this cult has decided to make her the next martyr. So the last portion of the film is the cult putting Anna through the torture process that is designed to condition her for martyrdom, which ends with, and this is the part that I wish I could get out of my head, but probably never will, skinning her alive with the exception of the skin on her face. Again, probably the most horrifying thing I've ever seen on film. This is where we meet the leader of the cult, an, an older woman, who comes in, and right before Anna dies, Anna whispers something to her. The woman takes this information, goes back in a room, and kills herself. We don't find out what Anna told her. Um, we don't know exactly what drove the woman to kill herself. Well, I Anna, think, I Anna, think we Anna passes away, and that's the end of the movie. This movie bothered me for so many reasons, and, and, and I tried to really think about it much as I didn't want to. Was it the um, skinning? The, skin- like that part of- <laughs> the, the skinning, but I think what it was, was it was the idea of what human beings can do to other human beings based on a belief. That shook me to my core, and it was a feeling of despair it created in me that I never want to have again. And like I said before, I'm all about making movies you want to make. I'm, I'm not into censorship. I'm not into... You know, all that stuff. I, I understand the freedom of the artist and artistic license and vision. Having said that, I wish this movie did not exist. I'm so glad it does because I love this movie. I don't think it's not without its flaws. I think that it, there, there are some things I really didn't like about it, um, but nothing that could compare with... <laughs> Gibby's hugging me right now because I'm so traumatized. None of the flaws, none of the problems I had with it came anywhere close to taking away from essentially what I took away from the movie. Which was? What she's done is horrible. And it makes a comment on, I think in a way that Irreversible does, where it's commenting on what we watch, what we allow happen, what what we're searching for, how it affects other people, all these sorts of things. And I, I haven't been able to shake it in a way that definitely disturbed me, but in a way that I'm appreciative of. Yeah, so uh, obviously I'm going to disagree with you here a little bit. I'm okay with ambiguity at the end of the movie. A lot of times I like it, but I think a film has to earn its ambiguity. And I felt like this movie just got nowhere close to it. I felt like they were driving to a very specific thing, and then at the end they just took the easy way out. Mm. That frustrated me too. I felt like there were a lot of ways to interpret the ending. Each interpretation says something so totally different, and I felt like the filmmakers by the end of the movie owed us a more concrete explanation as to what they were trying to do, especially given what they've just put us through for for two hours. The 
cruelty of seeing what this girl goes through for an end that has no redeemable value was just so soul crushing to me. There was just there was nothing redeemable to me at all about this film in 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 any way. And I certainly respect your opinion. You and I obviously had very different takeaways from it, but it crossed a line to me and became somewhat irresponsible even to a point where I felt like the filmmaker owed me an apology by the end of the movie. Ooh. Whew. Well, that's it, guys. We made it through. We did it. All right, guys, as fast as possible, what are you excited about? We have a, we have a mutual friend named Brent Almond who has produced a film that just uh, came out, wide release, Zach Galifianakis, Owen Wilson, Kristen Wiig, uh, called Masterminds. I have not seen the film. I, I do want to see it. It's not even that I'm excited about the film as much. I'm excited for him. I always love seeing people that I know who have worked hard uh, to succeed. So I want to give a shout out to Brent Allman, producer boy, of Masterminds. For me, I watched a movie called uh, Boy, uh, directed by Taika Waititi, New Zealand filmmaker. Uh, a delightful film. Definitely recommend people checking it out. It is on Netflix. Netflix. I'm really excited about my Blu-ray copy of Necromantic. Oh, you can take it back. They only right. made ten. Right back. They only made ten thousand copies of it, and it's got some great special features. And they've sold two of those ten thousand. <laughs> Not both true. to Jordan. Uh, I'm excited about a film that I watched on Amazon Prime last week called Slow West, starring Michael Fassbender and Cody Smith McPhee. It was kind of a, a fun little western about What's eighty-four slow? minutes it's called long. Slowest. Slow West. Slow space. It's about, the, west. it's about the slowest gun in the West. No, it's actually it's a it's about a boy who travels to the U.S. from Ireland because a girl that he loved came over here as she was wanted from uh, for murder in Ireland. Is him trying to find his way across the West to find her. It's pretty funny and it's very well shot and of course with Michael Fassbender and it very well acted. Is it as funny as this podcast has been? <laughs> it's funnier. All right, guys, thanks for sitting through this horrific, disgusting, <laughs> disturbing, however many hours uh we will see you next week hey this is bill paxton want to drop us a line we're at fight about film on facebook and twitter if you enjoyed the podcast leave a review on itunes and be sure to subscribe for friends fight about film is